Shut up and sit down. Welcome back to another edition of the Limited Upside Podcast. I'm Mike Prada. Again, Ben Epstein is not with us. He is traveling for work. I question his commitment to this podcast, but, uh, you know, look, you do the best you can. In his place, though, we have two great guests on the line to talk about last night's NBA draft lottery. We have Jake Pavorsky, the uh, managing editor for Liberty Ballers, our 76ers site. And we have Harrison Fagan, also an editor for... Uh, Silver Screen and Roll, our Lakers site, the two winners from the lottery. How you guys doing? I've never felt better. <laughs> it was funny watching the uh, Liberty Ballers uh, draft scene from that bar. What, what was the name of the bar you guys do it at? Xfinity Live. It's right in the middle of all the uh, the stadiums there, the Philly Stadium, the Eagle Stadium, and the Sixers Stadium. Oh, it's a perfect location. It's like, what, 1,700 people all chanting, going nuts when they count down to two and then to one. I mean, it's an amazing thing you guys have built. Uh, but as I'm curious to, for both of you, uh, because you never see the lottery hold exactly to form like it did. Like it was almost like you're waiting to see like, who, which is the team that actually jumped and then nobody did. Like, I guess we'll start with you, Jake, cause you were out with your fellow Sixers fans. What take me through your emotions as the lottery balls count down. I was good for a while. I had kept the expectations low just because the past couple years have not gone in the Sixers plans. Uh, so I was thinking they're going to end up at three, they're going to end up at four, because as a Negadelphian, negative Philadelphia fan, that's sort of how I, I just think all the time. Uh, but I didn't remember the lottery order off the top of my head, starting from the bottom. So I'm seeing these teams pop up, and I just want to like, keep making sure that they're supposed to be in that slot, because otherwise you know, I have no idea until we get to about you know, six or seven is when I start to recognize the teams that are supposed to be there. And uh, it felt like there was a more palpable disappointment about the Kings pick not being top three than the Lakers pick falling to four, which I thought was kind of funny. Maybe people just wanted to, uh, to see the Kings continue to do horribly. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, it was, it was exciting. When you, you see, we're trying to, when they went to commercial, we're trying to think of, okay, who would it be worse to jump us, Boston or Los Angeles? And I, I said Boston personally. But, you know, to just sit there at one and have both of them sit still as well was just the perfect feeling. I mean, it would have been great to have one and four, but that would be a little greedy. Uh, so I'm just, I'm just happy we have one. It, it couldn't work out any better, in my opinion. It's so weird how the fates of these teams are decided by, like, within seconds, them unveiling a bunch of envelopes. Uh, a lot of people don't like the lottery. I think it's just, it's amazing. Even I have nothing, you know, I have no allegiances in this lottery, uh, <laughs> and yet my heart was racing as they unveiled the the lottery, the lottery kind of tickets it was amazing uh but i'm sure it doesn't compare to lakers fans and this is where i want to bring harrison in for you guys it's been talked about a lot you know the top three great not top three you end up with nothing and that has lasting ramifications is this was this more nerve-wracking than i guess the lakers don't have a ton of experience in the lottery but does this was this more nerve-wracking than other experiences you've had so last year and and thanks for having me on mike and uh last (laughs) I'm sorry. I guess I didn't fully introduce you. I apologize. No, it's it, it's all it's all good. Um, my my normal host is much worse. So shout oh, out to he? Anthony Irwin. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. Last year I think felt a lot 
more important for Lakers fans because they had just come off of, even though this year was the worst record in franchise history, you still had young players kind of showing stuff every game. It was either Clarkson did some nice things or Randall did some nice things or Russell did some nice things. And like there were reasons for optimism this season. So even if they lost the pick this year, I think that there were a lot of Lakers fans that were kind of accepting of that because going into the season, no one expected to be this bad. People expected to be bad. Like I think most, I don't think most fans expected them to make the playoffs, but I think they expected to be like respectable. And instead it was the worst team in franchise history. Whereas uh, getting back to last year, I think was more nerve wracking because you're coming into the season, you have Randall break his leg in the first game. And then it's just a bunch of veteran guys on one-year deals. You're watching the whole year until Clarkson kind of sort of starts to break out with uh, your Wizards pick, Mike, at the, <laughs> towards the end of the year. And so it just felt like a lot more important last year, I think, to get some kind of reward for that terrible season. Whereas this year, I think that there, I mean, there were a lot of people that were really on pins and needles for sure, starting with poor Mitch Kupchak up there, like having a panic attack on stage. <laughs> um, it was amazing. But, I, just the way that they're able to maintain their poker faces when they know, I guess they don't know the results, but somebody does. The Kembe knows. Dikembe knows. That's right. The <laughs> conspiracy of the lottery is finally revealed. It's just when Dikembe Matungo wags his finger, he's really wagging the number one. <laughs> That's what he's doing. Uh, but yeah, you touched on something interesting that applies, I think, to both of your situations, and that is, you know, for a team that's in the lottery, uh, you're really it's more about hope than wins and losses, right? I mean, for the Lakers, you said there was at least some hope for the future already on the roster. That is sort of the entire concept of having a lottery in the first place, right? I mean, you have, you're selling this hope of, you know, okay, we're bad now, but we can see some signs of improvement. And without the lottery, you kind of lose an element of that, I think. All right, I guess I'll take that one. Uh, Yeah, I think it's just... Like I said, last year it was just there. There was just no hope on the roster, and so this year with all of those guys playing fairly well, it just felt like there was at least some hope for the future. If the Lakers lost the pick, and then next year they would have gotten it no matter where it landed, even though it probably wouldn't have been as good because you have to assume they're going to improve a little bit from again worst team in franchise history this off season with all of the cap space. They're going to sign you would think like some capable guys, if not superstars, and so. They would have been a little bit better this year, but they would have had the unprotected pick next year and what's considered, I think, a deeper draft. I'm not a big draft, Nick, but from what I've heard, next year is considered a better draft. So I think that if the Lakers had lost the pick this year, I don't think it would have felt like the end of the world. But there was that being said, there was definitely kind of mass celebration on social media that they're getting the second overall pick in kind of what's considered, I think, a two-player draft for the most part, right? Yeah, that's what everybody says. Now, now, Jake, I know this is sort of a loaded question because of all the dynamics going on in Philly with Sam Hinkie and all that. How would you compare the level of hope fans have before the lottery happened and now now that they have the number one pick? I think it was sort of more desperation than anything else. I mean, you've been playing this game for this being the third year. You miss out on Carl Anthony Towns. You miss out on Andrew Wiggins and Jabari Parker the year before. Joel Embiid still might be great. Hasn't stepped on the court yet. We don't know about his, his long-term health. But for the people like us, the Liberty Ballers affiliated people, the Wrights to Ricky Sanchez affiliated people, 
obviously one of our main things in following this team through the rebuild was to see Sam Hinkie do well, to you know have the team do well so that he can be held in the regard that he should. So last night was sort of, I would say, the last real opportunity to honor what Hinkie did. As, as weird and as cultish as that sounds, and that's exactly <laughs> what that event was that we had, was very weird and very cultish. Um, but, I mean, you want to see that this was going to work out, that playing the lottery as often as they did for as long as they did was going to reap some serious benefits. And I think last night was just that sigh of relief that, thank God, they finally got the number one pick and have a chance at you know, either Brandon Ingram or Ben Simmons, two guys who have superstar potential in them. Because if not, then I think Hinkie's entire reputation would be completely tarnished. You mentioned the cult status. which just leads us into the question we can't really avoid, which is in as, li- as concise a way as possible, how do you explain the divide between those who Sixers fans who are really on board with the Hinkie process and I would say a lot of neutrals, a lot of whatever you want to call them that find this to be an abomination? I would say it's just a simple matchup of old people versus young millennials. I mean, you look at, at the older crowd who, you know, wants to see a team go out and compete every year and, you know, just to be able to put some wins on the board and look like they're fighting and giving their all. And then there's the young crowd like us that obviously, you know, as a Philadelphia sports fan, you don't see too many championships, but someone like me who grew up with the Phillies being very competitive, you know, you want to see a team have long-term success. And I think we realized early on, as soon as Sam Hickey made that Drew Holiday trade on draft night in 2014, and we saw this rebuild, we said, you know, we said to ourselves that this guy is really trying to set us up for long-term success. Yes, this is going to be absolutely miserable, you know, in the short term, but five, ten years down the line, or, you know, for the next five to ten years, they could be extremely successful. And I think that's what brought us to jump on board and to sort of bring together this cult and community of people that agreed with what Sam McGee was doing and wanted to support him, despite the fact that the local media and the more mainstream media wasn't really giving it the, the fairness it deserved. Well, what's interesting, I find, and I, I hate to harp on Philly, but I just find this to be, I, I hear this from Ben all the time, so I've got an experience with listening to it, is that the 76ers in the, I would say, decade plus before Hinky were sort of defined by everything that Hinky is not which is they were fighting for competitiveness, but it was sort of an aimless kind of drift towards, you would call it mediocrity, I might call it something else, but just this aimless drifting towards the middle of the league. And then Hickey comes in and wants to do the complete opposite. I mean, I can understand why there's sort of a kind of groundswell of support around that just because it's different. That, and I think that for the first time, in you know, with the Sixers in Philadelphia in general, in a long time, that we saw someone with a concrete plan of action. I feel like so many GMs in the city have just gone, and especially with the Sixers, have just gone year to year, just trying to fill in pieces to get this team to forty, forty-five wins, so they could be a seven, six seed, whatever. And and finally, there was a guy who said, "We're going to take this step back, so we can be the one seed, the two seed, be very competitive for a championship for multiple years." And and just that in theory, and, and hearing Hinky speak. You know, as little as he did, but when he did talk in public, just how bright he sounded, how committed he sounded to the plan, it was hard for us not to get behind it. Of course, he was more committed than his owners ultimately were, so that was his <laughs> his downfall. I mean, back we'll talk more about Philly, but back to L.A., just to jump back here. The Lakers are sort of operating under this interesting timeline where there's this moving target with Jim Buss that he has to kind of get this team competitive by a certain point. And yet they're a team that probably is in 
the same position as Philly in terms of bottom of the league, probably should be building up. You know, how do you, as a Lakers fan, I mean, do you, does this whole Jim Buss guarantee that they have to be competitive bother you? Do you Would you want to see something more like what Philly has done? Or is there some middle ground there that, you know, you want to see the team built in some combination of, yeah, we have some young talent, but, like, it's not a – we should try to get better quickly. Uh, I think myself personally, I'd prefer that they stick with the youth movement just because I, I just don't see short of signing Kevin Durant, which I think they have like maybe a 1% chance if we're being generous of doing. I, I just don't know who you're going to sign this summer that's going to make the team that much better that it's that it's worth you know, going in or giving up assets to do so or whatever it may be. Like if they can sign some nice players into that cap space, then that's obviously good. But I think as far as the guarantee goes, it's it the last that it was kind of on record, it was Western Conference Finals by next summer, which <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly like you're laughing. Like, yeah, it's probably I, I not going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I, the, like that's not going to happen. And so the worry I think among a lot of fans and my myself included, I guess, is that that timeline is going to make the team make short-sighted moves in an attempt to try and get immediately better if everything goes right. Give up, you know, a couple young guys for kind of a fringe all-star and really try and just kind of make the playoffs and see what happens. And it sounds like their plan is to try and make the playoffs and see what, see what happens. But what's been encouraging is that all of the quotes from uh, Jim Buss or Mitch Kupchak have suggested that, yeah, they're going to try and be better next year, but that they're going to try and build something sustainable. Yeah, I mean, to some degree they have no choice, right? I mean, it takes a second team to trade. It takes a free agent to want to go there. You know, but they still – now they have the second pick, maybe it makes it easier – but we talked about with Philly, sort of past experience sort of informs the kind of enthusiasm of something different or whatever. I think the Lakers, it's sort of the opposite situation where they've never been in this position before, where they are one of the worst teams in the league and they have to rebuild like a lot of other teams have to rebuild. And it sort of created this interesting tension. On the one hand, there's a push that they've got to be competitive because they're the Lakers. They don't do this. But on the other hand, there is something fresh about trying to rebuild a different way, I would say. I mean, is that a fair way to look at it? Yeah, I think so. And then even last year when the pick was top five protected, you had this kind of groundswell movement. I actually I kind of got my start doing podcasting. We I started a podcast with a couple of the writers called Team Tank originally. <laughs> and we were talking about the benefits of the Lakers trying to lose to get that extra chance at protecting their first round pick from being sent to. Well, it started out in Phoenix and then now they traded it to Philadelphia and I, I think that there is, you know, if you talk to casual fans around Southern California, they're very down on the Lakers, in my experience, for the most part. They, they just, they don't consider the team very good. They, they don't really, they don't want to watch it. They, they aren't very high on the players. But at least on the internet, it seems like a lot of people are very high on this youth movement. And so it's kind of a weird dichotomy. Yeah, you also have the TV deal, which I believe is based on ratings, which yes. you would think you need to build the team competitively. There's not having Kobe to sell tickets. I mean, there's a lot going on. We could spend hours on it. Real quick, before we talk about uh, Ingram and Simmons, uh, one last thing on Philly. As a very vague question, a very open question to Jake, where's the feeling on the Colangelos now? I know 
Jerry, there's some negative feelings because of how we kind of got to the top. But is there a sense now that the number one pick is there, now that they've said they're not going to trade it, it was, all of that, they seem still want to kind of build. Is there a sense that Brian deserves a fair shot You know, at this point? I think so, and I think most people were, were always willing to give that to him. Just the situation that surrounded him and getting the job was what sort of turned people off, especially from Jerry. And obviously we were big supporters of Sam, so seeing him go in the way that he did, you know, didn't make Brian's intro that much easier. But he seems like a genuine guy. He keeps using the word process like that's the buzzword that the PR people have told him to use. He used it like a <laughs> hundred times in his introductory presser, so that's always nice. Uh, but... He's had a great draft record. That was something that, that carried him through Toronto and helped them build the core they have right now. So I think it would be hard for him to mess up uh, this draft class. And obviously there's the two guys at the top, I think, and we'll get into those guys more specifically in a minute, but I like both of them. I think you can't go wrong with either. Uh, so as long as he's keeping the pick, I'm going to be a happy guy, and I'm, I'm willing to give him the chance to, to lead this team into the future. But the big concern that I saw with him in Toronto that I might have with him in Philadelphia is that Toronto was always making moves to fill in pieces. Like It felt like every year they really had to compete when necessarily they were not always prepared. And Philadelphia is by no means ready to compete. But here you are now with the ownership saying we need to speed up this rebuild. And now you have a guy here who has had an itchy trigger finger and an offseason where the salary cap's going up and there's going to be a lot of guys cashing in on deals that probably won't look too good in three or four years. I'm just not sure if Brian's the right guy for the job. But at the same time, I'm willing to give him the chance to show us he is. Yeah, it's always funny when we talk about GMs and their propensity for kind of making slow moves or making immediate moves. A lot of times they're just doing what ownership's bidding is. And so while your Colangelo is worth you know giving the benefit of the doubt, it ultimately comes down to Josh Harris's vision. And I think that's the ultimate question in Philly, and that's the ultimate question in L.A. too with the Bus family. I mean, it's it's very similar – and now that they have these picks, they're in an interesting position to sort of straddle both lines where they can get an impact player right away, you know, and they can either choose to watch them grow or they sort of have at least the latitude to say, well, we have this great prospect. Let's get moving. And it'll be interesting to see what both does, both teams do. But uh, back to Ingram and Simmons, do you guys have a preference? I don't personally. I'm, I'm cool, very cool with either. I think obviously – you look from a fit standpoint, what the Sixers really need, they need some shooting. But as I wrote in an article today covering some of the mock drafts, when you have the number one pick, that sort of says that you have a need in every area. Like This team does not have one guy you can really build around right now. And I think Simmons has that potential to be that guy. So I don't think having Dario Sarge likely coming over, having Nerlens Noel, Joel Embiid, uh, Jaleel Okafor in the fit should really take them out of the running for taking Simmons because he's a perennial talent. He can also run the point a little bit, which could change you know some things on offense. You could actually have two of those other big men I just named on the floor at the same time with Simmons because he can handle the ball well. He knows how to distribute. Uh, I think he's the more talented guy. I would take him gun to my head. Uh, I think that what Brian Colangelo is going to want to do is he's not going to want to overthink this. He wants to see what the team really needs they need a shooter. They need a swingman they can play through. I think Brandon Ingram can be that guy. Uh, and he doesn't want to overcomplicate this. I think he's going to... I had an issue watching this team last year just because all the pieces they were trying to fit together and trying to get Nerlens and uh, Jaleel to fit together was an absolute disaster. I don't know if Brian wants to continue that issue by adding another guy to the fold, even if he is the more talented. 
they may play it up like they think Brandon Ingram's the more talented guy, and they may think that. They might not. I really don't know. Uh, but all I know is he's a better fit, and I think that's going to weigh on their, their minds, whether it's right or wrong. Harrison, do you have a preference? So I think I think uh, I think from an individual standpoint, I agree with Jake. I think Simmons is probably the more talented player, and the Lakers don't even have the fit issues with him necessarily that the Sixers would. The Sixers have, I think, like four guys in that front court right now that are fairly young and that they use lottery picks on, and the Lakers just have Julius Randle. So I think that if the Sixers take. Ingram and the Lakers are left with Simmons I think of course you take him and then you kind of figure out that fit later whether or not him and Randall can really play together because neither of them can shoot which is kind of the large issue and they're both probably going to be power forwards because of that but I think you still take Simmons because he's still so much more talented than Randall as a or like so much more highly touted as a prospect as well and then you figure out that fit later and if you have to move Randall then you move him later. This idea of fit is very interesting to me um, because I think, for one, I think it gets conflated with need a little bit. Need is sort of more of an NFL thing where it's like you've got to plug positions. I think in the NBA you don't have that problem, and so it's not really – you don't go into the draft thinking we need shooting really because you know you can get shooting a lot of different ways. These are foundational pieces. That's not the right way to think. But I think fit does matter, and – you inadvertently proved that case a little bit, Jake, when you talked about Noel and Okafor and all the players the Sixers have up front. I think it's a reasonable argument to say that while Jaleel Okafor might have been the best player available, it may have been better. You might have maximized Nerland's Noel more by taking someone else, and then maybe you have two players whose talents are maximized rather than two players who are sort of because they're just so similar in terms of their offensive situ- skills, obviously defensively they're very different, they kind of take away from each other. So you think that even given that, though, and given the need for shooting, the need to find someone who can play on the perimeter, that being a better fit, again, I don't want to conflate the two, still think Ben Simmons, despite kind of maybe exacerbating some of the biggest issues of the Sixers' front court, is still the way to go? I do, just because I still don't think they have that front court piece to build around yet. I mean, it might be on the roster, but none of those guys have solidified themselves to the point where I would be comfortable taking Ingram over somebody else just because that position's already filled. Nolan's Noel is only a lob threat, great rim protector, but really can't do anything else. Joe Okafor is limited in his own sense, can't really defend anywhere on the floor, still working on his range. He's kind of like an ISO-heavy guy that is very... Uh, difficult to fit in with the current quarter, and Joel Embiid hasn't played yet. So when you have the chance to add a talent like Simmons, regardless if they're at similar positions as those guys, I, I think you just have to do it. I'm, this team has been looking for their cornerstone. Simmons could very well be that guy, and if ownership group in the front office are confident enough in him to think that he could be, uh, then they'll bring him in. Uh, will he be playing a little bit of point guard at first? Maybe. I think that if they do bring him in, there's going to be a lot of experimentation going on, and I don't know how great I feel about making him a full-time point guard. Uh, I think he would definitely need some help. They would need to bring in uh, another guy, whether they bring back Ish Smith or something like that. He can't be running the point. Uh, as, you know, as, the very, as the real primary guy, I think he's going to have to play a lot of power forward as well. But uh, the fit issues don't scare me away from taking him whatsoever. Would you then trade one of those other guys? Yes. 
I mean, I, I don't think they will. I think they're going to wait another year. I think they're going to see what goes on with Nolan Zarell's contract extension. If he wants too much, I think they could ship him out. Uh, if, if they can work things out with him, I think he fills a need in terms of defense. They could get rid of Julio Okafor, possibly revisit that deal with Boston this summer that they offered at the trade deadline, uh, giving up their, their top pick from Brooklyn, sending that to the Sixers for Julio Okafor. I would be pretty open to doing that right now. I'm pretty open in my dislike of Julio in terms of fitting with this team. Uh, and if Boston wants to have him, I think they, they can take him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just interesting. You're sort of I, – I would disagree a little bit. Just when you're saying the fit issue with Jalil Okafor, I mean, to me, that's sort of a self-inflicted fit issue, right? I mean, everybody, right. I mean, everybody knew that, that it would be a challenge to play Noel and Okafor together, right? I mean yeah. – and so they sort of willingly took that on. And now it's a year later, and neither both players have more question marks in their game. You wonder – if they had perhaps drafted somebody that would have fit better with Noel instead of Okafor, maybe Noel would look a lot better. But at the same time, I suppose, if that Boston trade really is on the table, maybe it's not like Okafor's trade value has really tanked. Um, I'm just, I just think it's a little bit of a – I think that there's a reason to worry about these things just because you're ultimately trying to grow them all, or right? I mean, I know – I know there's a sort of idea that you, you take one and then you see how it works out and then you trade whatever doesn't fit or right. you figure out that way. But what if that whole process just makes them all worse? I mean, that's the thing I would worry about. And that's why I would probably actually lean to Ingram if I'm Philly. It's possible. And I do, I do see what you're saying. And, and you talk about maximizing value. I think that they, they, that was not something they really considered that carefully last summer. And I think that was obvious. Obviously, you would maximize Kristaps in an offense like this, and even defensively too, right. having him next to Nerlens, he would have been perfect. Uh, so that's an issue when you look at this team. But you add in a, gar- a guy like Dario Sarge, you think Joel Embiid can space the floor a little bit in certain situations. They're starting to put together pieces that would fit a whole lot better than they would last year, and they have a lot more options to tinker with uh, to make those guys fit. I think Dario could really be a linchpin in terms of offensively getting him to space the floor. He's increased three point shooting. Every year, I think he was like 50, 40, 90 in EuroLeague this year, which is pretty was impressive. Okay. Yeah, he was pretty close if he was not wow. over that mark. That's impressive. I didn't because that was a knock on him, right? He was a st- poor shooter. It was when he was originally drafted. He was shooting like 30, 32 percent from three or something like that, and has just steadily increased it over the past few years. Defensively, he's going to be a bit of a mess, and if you put him with Jaleel, then all hell's going to break loose there. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, that's a guy right there that I think could fit pieces together, and you could play Simmons with Joel. You could play Simmons with Nerlens, I think, again, because he can do so much with the ball in his hands that you can spread him out a little bit, have him run the offense. He can also drive and dish things off to Nerlens under the basket. There's some things they could tinker with. They could have some serious uh, mismatches. So, again, this is not something that would, that would scare me away from Simmons. I think that you know having all these big men and some of them being very athletic could be a, a, big, a big positive for this team going forward. Yeah, it's true. Zigging, zagging rather than zigging. Now, Harrison, do you feel like the Lakers sort of there's less anxiety because they literally all they really have to do is pick the the player that the Sixers don't pick? I mean, it almost seems like they're in a better position just because Oh yeah, of that. 
There definitely, I think there's definitely a lot of sentiment about that. I even saw going into the lottery, there were a lot of people saying that they'd rather have the second pick because then you just kind of get whichever of those guys Philly doesn't take and there's not the stress going into it. I know for me personally as a writer, it makes my job a little (laughs) bit harder because I don't have, uh, you know, these easy articles where I write, you know, uh, which player should the Lakers prefer, you know, all that stuff because it's not their choice. But And I think it probably makes it easier on the front office because even though Mitch Kupchak is saying he's not sure that there's that big of a gap between two and three, they're going to bring the guys into workouts. They kind of have to say that. And I just think that they're going to take whichever one of these guys that Philly doesn't. And I do think that that definitely makes their job a lot easier. And it also puts a lot less kind of pressure on them to make the right decision because if it's widely considered a two-player draft and one of the players is gone, then that's what they were left with. Uh, Jake, I don't think you agree with this, right? You were telling this off-air that it's not better to be second. This is overthinking it. That was definitely something I wanted to chime in on because when, when you say things like that and you look at the Lakers as a winner because they don't have to decide, then I think that goes to show that you don't have faith in the GM or the media doesn't have, you know, the guys who are around the team and know Mitch Kupchak don't have faith in him to pick the right guy at number one. Well, I, I, hold on. I, I just want to say, I don't know that that's coming from the media. I saw a lot of that from fans. I, I don't know that the media around the team is necessarily saying the same thing. I, then I should say, Nat, I saw a handful of national guys say that this was the best position the Lakers could be in, to be in two okay. rather than one, just to have, you know, take whoever's left so you don't have to make that tough decision. I think you want to have to make a decision like that. I, I think that goes to... That could change the course of your franchise. If the Sixers are at one and they just take Ben Simmons and Ben Simmons turns out to have the longer career, the better player, how does that look good if you know you were left with Brandon Ingram? I think you want to be able to be put in a position like that to make those decisions, whether you're right or wrong. I mean, obviously, it's not going to look good if you're wrong, but you want to have that opportunity to begin with. So to come out of that and say the Lakers are in a better spot than the Sixers are just because they don't have to make that choice sounds kind of asinine to me. And, you know, Jake, I think the Lakers would probably agree with you. I think they'd probably (laughs) rather have the choice. I I just I was saying more from a fan perspective. I I think that it kind of just it it makes things a lot less stressful going into the draft of, you know, are they going to make the right decision? Because I don't think that there's total faith in this front office. I mean, there's not really a reason to have total faith in this front office. They've had they're coming off of like three consecutive seasons where they posted the worst record in the history of the team. And so uh, while I think that there is some faith in them, I think that there's also underlying sentiment that, you know, maybe it's they're better off just getting whoever's left, I guess. And there's a similar sentiment in Philadelphia, too, with the nervousness of this new front office, because you look at, you know, the two guys and which one's going to fit. And obviously we're going to debate this for the next, you know, month and a half here. Know, on the who they're going to take. That's why I think Calan- Brian Colangelo could just make the easy decision and just say, listen, Ingram fills a need, ta- very extremely talented player. Whether he's going to be better than Simmons or not, I don't know. Obviously, you can't project that kind of stuff uh, and have it you know, be 100% truthful at the time. Uh, but he could just make the easy decision and say, this is a guy we need to fit this roster. Let's go get him instead. It does feel like Ingram's case is building momentum, which I uh, I haven't really watched – enough of the two to know for sure but it it does feel like to some degree Ingram's case is building simply because he's the anti-Simmons it's sort of like it's not really like Ingram is doing a whole lot more it's just that 
Simmons had a rough end of the year, and suddenly we're all worried about shooting, and we're forgetting some of his other worldly worldly skills. And now he's twenty; he's a year older. I, I wonder if we're getting a little too far ahead of ourselves here. Oh, I, I definitely think that there's been too much blowback against Simmons. With all of the, no, even aside from just his play towards the end of the year, there's a lot of you know kind of whispers from a lot of the media guys about his personality and teams having concerns about that. And I think he kind of suffered from the same thing that Jaleel Okafor got hit with last year, where it's just like if you go into the season and everybody expects you to be the best player in college basketball and you're going to be the few, the next number one pick, then the whole year is spent kind of picking these guys' flaws apart. I completely agree. I mean, we're at the point every year except for Towns last year where you're just looking for flaws in these kind of guys. And uh, obviously Simmons didn't show the best of effort at the end of the season. But I don't think people look at that LSU team and see just how much of a mess they really are. Johnny Jones looks like an absolutely awful coach. You had guards there that all they wanted to do was jack up shots. Nobody wanted to run the offense through Simmons. And at times it didn't seem like he was all that interested in getting the ball. But it's not like his teammates look for him anyway. I mean, if he's creating stuff, it's because he's getting rebounds and he's pushing the ball himself and doing things on his own. Not too many people are setting him up for things. That team was a mess. Going to LSU was, was an awful decision. If he goes to Kentucky, Duke, Kansas, is he the number one pick like, definitively? I don't know. Maybe. I think there's a better shot than, than him going to LSU, you know, playing under his, his godfather, I think it was, who's an assistant coach, and, and trying that route because it, it clearly didn't work out. That team was a disaster. Well, maybe not Kansas because of having right. three prospects. But, Very true. Uh, <laughs> but, yes, I, I, I think there's a lot to it. And the shooting thing is a problem, though. Like I, he, he cannot shoot at all, and he won't try. I mean, he can learn, <laughs> but, I mean, that's a problem. I mean, when, when you're that bad a shooter, teams will just pack the lane, and that does negate a lot of your other gifts. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely an issue. And, and one of the things that I've – talked about with people and I've seen also bring up is as look at the kind of stuff Giannis Antetokounmpo has done. That's a incredible great comparison. Incredible dribbler, great at going to the rim, gets out in transition. He's obviously a little bigger than Simmons in terms of wingspan body, can do all, a lot more crazy things athletically. But he scores at will, was absolutely dominant through large stretches this year. Um, you know, and when that was with a big front court too, you have guys like Greg Monroe or supplanted in the post there, you know, holding that down, and and that didn't seem to affect Giannis's production that much. And you want him to shoot, um, you want him to uh, improve his shooting, especially on the Sixers. But if for the time being, if that isn't a facet of his game, there, Giannis is a perfect example of someone who shows that Ben can still be a good contributor right out of the gate. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great comparison. Obviously. Giannis is a better athlete, like you said. He's probably not as good a passer, though. I mean, that that's a feather in Simmons's cap. But, um, you know, am I overlooking something with Ingram? I mean, look, he's got the prototypical position. He's younger. He can grow into his body. I don't know if Kevin Durant is a great comparison, but I think that's a little much. But, I mean, he's right back behind there, and that's where the league is going with those players. I mean, he would be great in L.A., certainly. Yeah, and I know that there's uh, there, uh, there are quite a few writers and Lakers fans that have him kind of at the top of their draft board, regardless of his fit with the Lakers. But he does fit a lot better with the Lakers than Simmons does right now. And you can kind of, again, we, we've talked about the best player available versus fit. Is Simmons being picked apart too much? But it's kind of hard to argue that 
uh, just from like next year standpoint and with the Lakers current roster that Ingram wouldn't be a better fit. I think he shot like 41% from three last year. The Lakers definitely struggled with that. They have a big hole at the three, whereas they have Randall at the four where Simmons would play. And again, I think Simmons will probably be better than Randall, but in terms of just kind of managing your assets and drafting for fit, I think Simmons or uh, sorry, Ingram is the better fit going forward and especially with Luke Walton coming in he's saying he wants to try and run the same offense or a similar offense to Golden State and one thing that you definitely need if you're going to do that is shooting which Simmons doesn't provide as much of but uh, Ingram definitely could yeah I mean I, I think it's they're both great sorry choices. guys my dog's bar- oh all right let's let's all listen to Harrison's dog uh, you got to bring him to the mic what are his got, thoughts I- on Simmons and Ingram yeah let's get yeah. let's get his thoughts <laughs> I'm afraid, though, that if he says the wrong thing, he might be barking up the wrong tree. Very nice. That's a great, <laughs> oh, great God, play to that run was there. Terrible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, I think it's fairly clear that you know Ingram Simmons are both going to be nice prizes. Um, before we log off on this podcast, I do want to talk about this idea now of lottery reform and whether this might come back up. I know this is a a topic that has sort of hit the Sixers hard. Um, do you, are we, we're still sure that this is the best system lottery wise in terms of, uh, how the lottery balls are weighed, or do you think that maybe it is time to think about a new system? I think in, in terms of some of the alternates that have been brought up, especially the ridiculous wheel idea that was floating around, uh, from Zach Lowe about a year and a half ago, I still think this is the best thing until anything else gets brought up. And you look at, People are knocking the Sixers for trying to get the number one pick because they were quote unquote tanking. What was the first year they've done that in the past three years? Isn't that what the lottery is all about? Is weighing it so they, I, yes, they have the best chance of getting that number one pick, but there are still odds good enough for other teams to jump up and take that pick. That's exactly what's happened in the past two years. I mean, it's, it's necessarily done its job in a sense. I, I don't see why you need to get rid of it for the purpose of teams being motivated to tank because. Clearly, it hasn't worked out for the Sixers like they would have liked it to. I mean, they, they didn't end up with Towns. They didn't end up with Wiggins. They ended up with, you know, Jaleel Okafor and Joel Embiid. And if they, if they were the Timberwolves right now, we would be in a, having a completely different conversation about the future of this team and probably lottery reform, too. They're not in that place right now. Harrison, yeah. do you agree? Yeah, I agree with Jake. Of all the proposals that I've seen brought up, I just don't see an idea that's better. I think that this is the most fair way to do it. And I think that a lot of the anti-Philly blowback kind of stemmed from, I guess, jealousy from other GMs that where, you know, they didn't have the job security to just tank for four years. Well, I guess Sam Hinkie didn't either. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I think that's a fair point. You know, I I've heard a lot of these arguments uh, just for a fairer system that maybe weighs the lottery balls a little bit differently. I kind of agree that the there's always going to be an incentive to lose at some level of the process, whether it's to lose a lot at the beginning or, you know, I think about like Premier League soccer. There's a there's sort of an incentive for teams to kind of shut down once they reach 40 points and they're out of the relegation battle. I mean, to me, that's just a different form of competition kind of being lessened uh and i think that's one thing and the, and the other thing is just listening to you guys talk and listen to you reading your sites and reading your commenters and all of this there is something to selling hope 
that is necessary in these markets. I mean, imagine if now you guys kind of are two of the bigger market teams in the league, so there's a built-in fan base. But if you're a fan of a small market team that is really bad and has no real hope of improving or certainly less of a hope of getting that franchise-changing talent, I mean, you're, you're losing entire markets that way. And that's the thing that I think people tend to forget is that the NBA sort of does, as whether it's a fair system or not, it needs kind of strong markets everywhere, and it needs to sell that hope. And if I can jump in here, I think one of the coolest things about the way this lottery system is set up is that it just makes for th- fantastic theater. Like everyone, <laughs> one, one through 14 feels like they have an opportunity to get the number one pick. And, I mean, you, you look at what Cleveland did for a couple years in a row where they were jumping all over the place. They were, you know, at the top of the, the lottery odds and they were towards the bottom a little bit, and they ended up with the top pick. I mean, anyone can win it on any given year. It's fantastic to watch. Obviously, you saw some of the videos from the lottery party. People go ballistic when it, and it happens in their team's favor. And another thing, too, with other proposed lottery reform is that if you want to even out the odds, I think what you would see going forward is a lot of teams that are sitting around 500 at the trade deadline deciding whether to become buyers or sellers see an incentive to sort of take that year off, maybe trade off a couple pieces, because they now have a better chance of getting the top pick than they did in years past. And I think that the other thing is, is Mike, you kind of talked about selling that hope. And what, in my experience, if you, talk to, if you talk to people and you explain to them kind of rationally why it's better that the team, even though obviously it's not fun to watch bad basketball for a whole year, I think when it's explained to fans rationally why it's better to kind of build slowly or let these guys develop and the benefits of getting those picks, I think most of them tend to understand. It's just I, I don't think that a lot of these franchises make an effort to they, they talk about winning and all of this stuff and they don't really make an effort to sell like why it would be better to kind of take have a slower year or have a down year. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, too, is that we already have seen in Philadelphia especially that, you know, the the patience for this strategy really does have a limit. You know, it's not like you can do this forever. I mean, Sam must have thought that they could do this for a long time, and then it didn't happen that way. Owners got a little tired of losing. And you see this with a lot of other teams, I would say. You look at... You know, a team like New Orleans, which probably would have benefited from a slower rebuild, they just ownership just didn't have the stomach for it, and that part of that is because playoff revenue is real, and you that money really does help. And part of it is just if you're in any competition, you know, you're going to want to do as well as possible in it. It's you know, so I sometimes think there's sort of built-in incentives against tanking anyway. Like I don't think we necessarily need to add more. Well, and then the biggest incentive against tanking is it's just miserable for the team and for everyone around it For the from what I've seen. Well, this was going to be the last year Philadelphia was going to do it. Like, there was no way anyone was getting through another year of them being as bad as they were. And even before Hinky got fired, stepped down, whatever you want to call it, he was talking about throwing around some serious cash this offseason for some free agents as well. So they had sort of hit that point where they had maxed out all of their opportunities to try and tank all the assets sort of culminated this year to where they had to put together a core after this draft, after this offseason. This was the end, but I will tell you that this was the most miserable NBA season of all time as a Sixers fan, Sixers writer, whatever. And watching this team play on a night-to-night basis was, was, was mission impossible, really. How do you get through 48 minutes of watching them play basketball? You couldn't. And at first, for the first two years, people were really on board, and then you hit this point where, you're missing out on the lottery. The team still looks terrible because you're still trying to play the lottery. 
then you start to lose people. And if they were looking like this next year, I don't think I'd feel the same way I did about the process as I do right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny how that works. There's this, on the one hand, the basketball is so awful. On the other hand, the vision makes sense. So you have, you're able to sort of speak a little bit out of both sides of your mouth there. It's not a contradiction, uh, which I think is is sort of interesting. The only argument I can think of that maybe is in support of changing this is looking at it from a player's perspective. We want these guys to shine, and putting them on the worst teams gives creates a lot of pressure where they have to live up and save these franchises, and I think that can be a little difficult. The alternative, though, is probably worse, where you kind of put them all on the best teams. Again, then you sort of lose markets. So I think that's a fair trade-off, but I think that's a reasonable point against all this. Yeah, I, I think that teams just have to do a better job of like putting a, an, an, an infrastructure in place so that these guys are growing and just not feeling hopeless throughout the year. It's about having competent GMs, and the Sixers didn't have that for a while. Hinky was the closest thing to that for a little bit to help you know, set them up for the future. And, and I think if you have a smart front office who knows how to, to manage players and draft picks and stuff like that, then you don't really get to a point where you have to do what the Sixers did as extreme as they did. The Sixers did not have those smart guys in office. You had Doug Collins, Rod Thorne, Ed Stefanski, who just sort of depleted this team and, and made them you know, absolutely nothing. So that's why they did what they did. Well, this has been a fun discussion. Thank you guys for joining us. You can follow Jake on Twitter at, at Jake Pavorsky, P-A-V-O-R-S-K-Y. You can follow Harrison at, at H.M. Fagan. That's A-I-G-E-N. Definitely follow these two sites, uh, two of our best sites on the network, uh, Liberty Ballers uh, and Silver Screen and Roll. Uh, and I'm, I'm still stunned by those scenes from the lottery party at Liberty Ballers has built up an amazing thing there, and Silver Screen and Roll is doing the same. You can follow all of Limited Upside on Twitter at Limited underscore Upside. You can follow me at Mike Prada SPN. You can follow Ben, the uh, host that has neglected us again, at EpiBen. Uh, please leave us a review and rating. Thank you guys so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Go Sixers. Trust the process. Thanks for having us, Mike. All right, and until next time, this is the Limited Upside Podcast.